Well, if you watched or read any news surrounding the issues of the last presidential election, you know that a hot political topic was that of immigration reform. And there are many facets, there are many details, there's many issues that are associated with that topic. I don't want to minimize how big the task is or to ignore the sensitive nature of the issue in any way. But if I'm permitted to take liberty to simplify the issue or the question, I believe it boils down to this. Who is permitted to become a citizen of this country and who is not? Or said in another way, who's permitted to stay and who must leave? Now the outcome of that policy debate will have significant ramifications for many and even for some that we know and perhaps live among us. So it is indeed a serious issue needs to be handled carefully, and we do pray for wise and just policy. Nevertheless, as serious and important as that issue is, please hear me carefully, and please don't hear what I'm not saying, but hear me carefully. As serious and important as that issue is, it pales in comparison It is less than a drop in an ocean of importance compared to the issue or question of our heavenly citizenship. Our life on this earth is 70, maybe 80 years, maybe 90, maybe 20, maybe 10, depending upon how long the Lord deems fit. But this life on earth is fleeting. Heaven is forever, as is hell. Heaven is for eternity. It's for thousands and millions and billions of years wherein we will never exhaust the joy and profound love in exploring the love of God. It will take an eternity. Heaven is forever, and so is hell. So as important as our earthly temporal citizenship is, being sure of our heavenly citizenship is a far more important question. And it should grip us, And it should provoke us to ask, how can I be sure of my heavenly citizenship so that when I approach the doors of heaven, we have a valid passport? Fortunately, we have the book of 1 John to direct us and help us. And you know if you've been coming that we have been on a series here through the first epistle of John. And we've seen that the overarching theme of the book is the topic of assurance. Among other things that we're seeing is how the Apostle John is seeking to bring assurance to those in church. 
so that we might know for sure and for certain whether or not we really are in the kingdom of God or whether we are in the kingdom of darkness, a.k.a., as John says it, in the kingdom of Satan. To know whether or not we are children of God or, as he says again, whether we're children of the devil, it's pretty strong. It's John's way of saying, to know whether or not we really are Christians. So to that end, John teaches us that there are several tests, two of which we've already looked at as we've gone through the book. The tests that we can use to examine ourselves. We've looked at two already. The first test is a doctrinal test, what we believe. Second test is a moral test. Who do we obey? Today we'll take a look at the third test, the relational test. How do we love? How do we love? And as we open the scriptures today, I hope and I believe that John is seeking for us to understand the following principle put forth before us, and that's this, that the distinguishing moral mark of the Christian is the visible presence of sacrificial love. The distinguishing moral mark of the Christian is the visible presence of sacrificial love. So would you pray with me? Father, we pause now and posture ourselves before your holy word. Father, we recognize that as we slept, you did not. You were omnisciently overseeing the affairs of the universe. Father, you alone are completely holy. And we bow before you and we bow before your word. Father, we ask that you would walk among us by your spirit. Minister to our hearts. Teach us. And so now I ask that you would take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for yourself. Bend our wills to make them your own. For your name's sake, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, as some of you know, I've had the privilege and the opportunity to travel to South America for short-term missions on numerous occasions. Part of that experience is always the inevitable border-crossing experience. The big deal, of course, is not leaving my home country. The big question is entering a foreign country or entering back home. Entering into a foreign country, typically need a passport and often a visa. Returning home, of course, I need to have my passport. The experience is always about the same. When I approach the passport official who is sitting at his intimidating passport desk, 
as he looks down through his passport reading glasses and brandishes a passport pistol and has a passport dog by his side who looks at me like he's ready to eat me. I know that it is his job to determine my citizenship, not mine. And to do that, I have to show proof of my citizenship. He does not ask me, curiously, in all the times I've traveled, if I feel like an American. Nor does he ask me if I really believe I'm an American. No. Before he can permit me to enter the country, he must ultimately determine the answer to the following question. Has my citizenship been granted and approved by the authority of the nation? If so, it'll be visible in a valid passport. Why do I bring that up? Well, because in a similar way, I believe that we'll see in this passage that the Apostle John is giving us a test of heavenly citizenship. I believe the crux of this passage is this. If our citizenship is really that of heaven, if we really are children of God, then it will, I believe John is saying, be visible by our demonstration of love. It's not dependent upon feelings. It's not because I feel like I'm a Christian or don't feel like I'm a Christian, though feelings are not unimportant. Nor is it because we say we are Christians, nor is it because we wear a cross, and even it's not because I go to church. John says, if we really are Christians, if we really are children of God, if we really have been rescued out of the kingdom of darkness, then it will be visible through the way that we practice and perform sacrificial works of love to our brothers and sisters. Now, those works are not going to be perfect. They're not going to be complete, but they will be present. John says they must be present. They must be evident in the life of the believer. Not perfect, but present in an increasing manner. So... If you have not felt the tug of this passage already, this passage puts a devastating claim, and I use that word purposefully, upon the Christian. It takes us to a realm of the uncomfortable and often inconvenient because it calls us to sacrificial action. But it does so because the honor and glory of Christ are at stake. Likewise, our joy as Christians and our reward as Christians are at stake. So to this end, let me make three points which I believe come out in this passage. And the first is this. Love is required. Love is required. Authentic conversion must demonstrate love. Love is a mandate. It's a mandate for the Christian. We're called to willingly submit 
to the bond of love with our brothers and sisters. To pass the test, quote-unquote, of being a Christian, we must demonstrate love to our brothers. So note verse 10. I haven't read that, but look back at verse 10. It says this. By this it is evident who are the children of God. Who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Matthew did a great job last week preaching on that. encourage you to go back and listen to that message if you missed it. But it goes on to say, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Notice that John goes to the heart of the matter. Who's a Christian, who's not? And he goes as far as to place the importance of the practice of righteousness and obedience alongside of loving our brother. From the very beginning of Christian history, the people of God have been called to practice righteousness and holiness, and it's inseparable from the practice of love. Look at verse 11. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Go on to verse 12 and then 15. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Notice he puts hate in the same category as murder. And unless we forget the clear teaching and direct command of Jesus, as John says in his gospel, John 15, 12, it says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So throughout the epistle of 1 John, we see this repetitive theme again and again and again, that if we claim to come, that we've come into relationship with Christ through faith, and we know the new life that Christ has given us, and we have the new nature of Christ by his spirit, then we'll demonstrate the character of love. It is by necessity. Note verse 14. We know that we've passed out of death into life. How? Because we've attended church? Because we claim we're a Christian? No, it says, because we love the brothers. Then it makes a very devastating claim. He who does not love abides in death. He's putting a high value on love. And so he should. The new birth wrought by the Spirit of God brings a transforming power to the Christian. It brings awareness of our sin and an inward call and a leaning to live according to righteousness. That takes place because of the work of God. It also brings, as we sang earlier, an inward assurance of the forgiveness of Christ, which leads to an outward action of the praise of Christ. Please note that the transformation and new birth is far more than just living a good and moral life life. It's far more than just being a moral person. Being a moral person doesn't take us out of the kingdom of darkness. 
It doesn't exchange our nature. It doesn't give us the righteousness of Christ. So radical is the change of the new transformation that Jesus called it a new birth. As we've said, born again. But it only comes by the sovereign hand of God. It's a transforming process. It will have an outworking effect. If you are here this morning and you don't know the transforming power of Christ, if you are unsure that heaven is your home, if you're unsure that you've been given citizenship in heaven, and I want to encourage you, consider the call of Christ. The call of Christ is to come and to follow him. It's, called, it's a call to come and surrender everything, to give up everything and follow him. The stakes couldn't be higher to that decision. But as John says, if you have been born anew by the Spirit and transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, it will show forth in your life through love. To brings us to the question, what does John mean by love? So point number two, love requires sacrifice as is seen and defined by Christ's example. Love requires sacrifice as seen and defined by Christ's example. Christians are called to know and imitate the example of love. Now, love is a concept that is as old as humanity. Individuals, when asked, seem to have no problem, as I've found, coming up with an answer to the question, what is love? You can go out to the internet, look up the word love in the dictionary. The answers will vary widely depending upon the mindset of the individual. I'm sure each of us, if we had the opportunity, could come up with a definition and an opinion about love. Let me say pastorally, please be wise and discerning as it comes to adopting cultural norms about love. We live in a society where the current air and opinion of our culture sees no need to define love nor permits any intolerance against any opinion of love. And it often gives a variety of its own opinions about love, which we live in, we breathe the air, and we must be discerning about. Otherwise, it leads to confusion and at times to things that are not love at all. For example, I hear it said often, that anything we want to do in a relationship is fine because we love each other. Or, even though we're not married, premarital sex is okay because we love each other. Or, with the tragedy of divorce and the heart-wrenching that it is, oftentimes you hear, we think breaking up our marriage is okay because we no longer 
love each other. Or, still more, any type of relationship is okay as long as you love each other and you're happy. In essence, a reigning cultural view of love becomes subjective. In essence, it means whatever it feels like love is for you is acceptable and good, can't be argued with. But the Apostle John is not satisfied to leave love, thankfully, as subjective or undefined, nor to embrace or trust a cultural view. John found it necessary, as we see here, to define love and to give an example of what he means. For John, love is objective, it's measurable, it's definable, it can be seen and can be known. For John, love is sacrificial. Love is a sacrifice as exemplified by Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul, as perhaps you're thinking, in 1 Corinthians, gives a good description of love, and later on I would encourage you to go back and read it. But 1 Corinthians' concept of love flows out of the fountain of what we are reading here. And John is setting forth the standard and the source of love. John spells out here that the concentrated biblical definition of love points to Christ's sacrificial death. So look at verse 16. By this we know love, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us. And it goes on to say, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. The definition of love, as shown by John, is the picture of a man, not just any man, but a perfect, sinless man, giving up his life, laying down his life for his friends. It's a shepherd laying down his life for his sheep. It's a king, a king humbling himself, laying down his privileges, laying down his royal prerogatives to meet the needs of his servants. The example of love demonstrated by Christ is an example of self-denying love, self-abnicating action, sacrificial love. And of course, the ultimate expression of love that you probably know is when a man lays down his life for his friends. As we read in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. Jesus demonstrated the greatest love by laying down his life for us. We are called through acts of service and sacrifice to do the same for one another. Again, verse 16, he laid down his life for us. Now that was to purchase our atonement. None of us will be called upon to do that. But we are called by his example to lay down our lives for our brothers. Again, few of us will be called to martyrdom. Perhaps some of us. 
but all of us are called to have a heart posture of giving and sacrifice for our brothers in need. This can only come as we understand deeply and are personally governed by the real meaning of love. Love is not ultimately what I feel. It's not simply warm and romantic feelings about someone or happy and fulfilled in a relationship, though those are definite byproducts of love. Love, as John teaches, is an imitation of Christ's sacrificial example. So let me ask you two questions. Is your governing understanding and definition of love more culturally defined than biblically defined? Secondly, does your definition of love propel you to a personal agenda of self-sacrifice for your brother or sister or wife or mom or dad or sibling? To recap, point one said love is required. Two said love requires sacrifice. My third point is this. Love is visible action. Action that leads to the care of my brothers and sisters. Love, biblically defined, must be demonstrated. It's not sufficient just to be talk or words. If you recall at the beginning of my message, I mentioned that the third major test was how we can be assured we are a Christian. It was the relational test. How do I love? Now, I use the word how purposefully because I believe John is asking us to evaluate how we love, to take inventory. In other words, in what manner, by what method, by what means, how do we tangibly and visibly demonstrate love? And it is the love that we're called to imitate. But so as not to leave ambiguity, John makes clear what Christ-like sacrificial love in action looks like and to what we are called. And of all the things that he calls us to demonstrate, it's interesting what he points out. So look at verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Friends, we're called to make the intangible tangible. J.I. Packer says it this way, the purpose of the church is to make the invisible kingdom visible through faithful Christian living and witness bearing. For our conversation, for love to be biblical love, it must become tangible. It must be visible. 
It's not sufficient to simply say about a brother in need, I love them, I feel for them, without an accompanying demonstration of that love. It falls down to this as Christians, if we see our brother or sister in need, there is a requirement and there's a call upon our lives. It's a call to action to seek to provide for the need in terms of material provision and or in terms of tangible help. We're called to seek their welfare. This will often involve giving and sacrifice. The love of Christ, which we're called to imitate, is a tangible, material, giving type of love. And before I go any further, I just want to pause and say, I see this happening in our church. And where I see it happening, it's faith building. Where I see it happening, it's God glorifying. It holds up a placard that says, Christ in my life is Lord. And it gives me satisfaction beyond anything else to be able to give to his glory when I see a brother in need. And there are many of you that do this, and you do it well. And I, for one, seek to learn and imitate from your example. That's my first aside. My second aside is this. I and my family have personally been the recipient of such giving and care. And I can personally testify to the encouragement and the faith and the thanksgiving that raises in our hearts because of that sacrificial giving. We give praise to God for that. So John, in his call, is clear. If we see our brother in need, we're called to open our hearts, as he says, to meet that need. Now, this does not mean we must meet the entire need every time and cure the problem every time such that our ship now is going to sink It does not mean that we neglect the needs of our family. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, If anyone does not provide for his own relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Pretty strong words. It also doesn't mean that we don't save and invest. We're called to do that wisely. It does mean, however that we do try to meet the need with what we have. It does mean that in our hearts we are postured and prepared to step up into action, to give of what we have been given. It does mean that we adjust our worldly perspective on money and our desire for material possessions in such a way 
that they are governed and controlled first by the Lord's command, and that is to love sacrificially. And secondly, controlled by our eternal, future, heavenly hope of reward, more so than our temporal hope of reward. Hence, sacrificial love does mean that as we see our brother in need, that we're able, and as we are able, to give. To give of material things. To give of money. To give of service, as the Lord has given us. To me, as I was reading through this, it very much sounded and smelled like James. James chapter 2 says this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. Sacrificial love will demonstrate by giving of material things. Beloved, we are called to emulate Christ's examples, example and in that to demonstrate love in a visible and tangible way. And lest I fail to mention, there's an unspoken presupposition here that as Christians, we are in community in such a way that we can be aware of others' needs. And if that is not your situation, well, then that's the first button on the shirt. I'm not going to know everyone in the church. I'm not going to know everyone's needs. But I am called to be in community with some where I will know their needs and I will sense a call of God to step up to meet those needs. So in summary to what I have said, the practice of sacrificial love is required evidence of my conversion. Secondly, the definition of sacrificial love is exemplified in Christ's sacrifice. And thirdly, the demonstration of sacrificial love is shown in meeting material needs of my brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, the claim to imitate Christ is a claim upon us all. And quite frankly, whether you are a Christian or not, the claim is upon you to imitate the example of Christ. It's only those, however, who are in Christ are empowered by the Spirit and transformed to live out what Christ has called us to do. If you are here today, if you are a believer if you have been transformed by the power of God, then you are called, as I am called, to live out love in a sacrificial way. So in closing, 
and application, let me ask you some questions. I'd like you to ask yourself this. Am I captivated by the love and sacrifice of Christ? I begin with this question because in response to this passage, before we launch out into trying to meet a need, perhaps, that the Lord is putting on our heart, it always flows out of our recognition of what Christ has done for us. So I begin with that. Am I captivated, as in verse 16, by the love and sacrifice of Christ? Am I filled with a gratefulness for his sacrifice for me? Am I captivated by the love and sacrifice of Christ and thankful in such a way that I practice sacrificial love as I'm called upon in these scriptures? If I do, if I'm doing that, where can I continue? If not, where can I begin? Young people, what are you doing today to tangibly demonstrate to your parents, to your siblings, to your Christian friends, that Christ's sacrifice and his love for you compels you to imitate him. Can't just be thoughts. It's got to be actions. Husbands and wives, no elbows allowed. Please ask yourself, what am I doing today to tangibly demonstrate to my spouse that Christ's sacrifice for me and my affection for Christ are the controlling principles of my life towards my spouse. Let me read that again. What am I doing today to tangibly demonstrate to my spouse that Christ's sacrifice for me and my affection for Christ are the controlling principles of my life towards my spouse? For all of us, are there any persistent, unmet needs in the life of your brother or sister that the Lord right now may be leading you to try to meet? Or in the case of a community group, leading us as a group to try and meet? Think for a moment, please. Do any come to mind? If so, the word about those the direction from Scripture is clear. 1 John 3.18 says this, Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we are grateful that where we begin as we look at this is with your example of love. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for sacrificing. 
Thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving us in such a way that you gave us new life and called us to be yourselves. Lord, thank you for calling us sons and daughters and putting your spirit in us. Lord, we ask that you would help us to live out, live out sacrificial love in a way that brings honor and glory to your name. We ask this for your name's sake, Lord Jesus. Amen.